0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Valentine's Day, uh, February the 14th, 2023. Beyond all the silly Valentine's Day headlines about love, uh, they're the normal... Hysterical headlines, not in a funny way, but in a rather disturbing way about China. Session these days with apparently, and this is the Financial Times, which tends to be the most responsible of newspapers around the world balloons, aliens, and Chinese espionage. The US struggles to explain aerial encounters. Uh, According to CNN, China is going on the offensive as the balloon fallout threatens to damage credibility. Uh, The Hill suggests that, at least according to the White House, uh, stuff falling out of the sky was nothing to do with China. But nonetheless, there's more hysteria now about the Philippines after what The Hill calls a China laser report. In other words, we remain obsessed, transfixed, Haunted, if you like, by the Chinese threat and how it gets reported. One man who knows a little bit about this is my guest today, Adam Brooks. He used to be the BBC's man in Beijing uh, and uh, has spent a lifetime studying China. He was an undergraduate at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London um, and has spent his life not just as a journalist uh, but also uh, as a fiction writer he 's written some spy novels based on his experience as a journalist. He has some strong thoughts on how China should be portrayed both in journalism and commercial fiction and I think that reflects on his new book, his first work of nonfiction, which is out today in the United States been out for a few months in the u s uh, sorry, in the United Kingdom. Uh, Fragile Cargo, uh, The World War II Race to Save the Treasures of China's Forbidden City. Uh, Adam is joining us from America's Forbidden City, Washington, D.C. Uh, Adam, um, before we get to the details of this book, this is your first work of nonfiction. As I said in the introduction, uh, you're a man who's dedicated his life to studying and reporting on China. Did you choose this project in a sense as an effort to, if you like, normalize how we think of China? That's
1: uh, a great question. Um, thanks for having me to, today. Um, our problem, if I wanted to put it absolutely in a nutshell, is I don't think that we, and when I say we, I mean we, Europe, United States, we in the Anglophone world particularly, are just not very China-competent We don't know very much about the country, this entity that we call China today, by which we mean the People's Republic of China. We don't really know very much about the Chinese Communist Party. It's a very, you know, it's a bit of a black box. We don't really know how it works, but we don't really devote much effort to trying to find out in general. Um, And we don't know much about China's history. We don't know where this thing, the Chinese Communist Party, the People's Republic of China came from. And I encountered this extraordinary story about the imperial art collections in World War II, which kind of walks you through important chunks of 20th century Chinese history. And I'm hoping that by reading this amazing story, the reader might absorb kind of by osmosis um, some of the larger contours and a sense of these incredible transformations that China went through in the 20th century to become the People's Republic of China. And that, maybe just a bit, will give the readers some handholds some footholds on thinking about the PRC today and how we should respond to it.
0: When I first saw the book, I, I thought of the 2014 movie, The Monuments Men, about mm-hmm. uh, the saving of... Uh, uh, uh works of valuable works of art in in europe which is based actually on a best-selling book the monuments men by robert edsel and i quite realize what a bestseller it was on amazon the book has 3500 ratings is it in a way your book the chinese version of the monuments men
1: uh, it certainly has similarities, yeah. I mean, I certainly told the publisher that was what it was. <laughs> um,
0: yeah,
1: that's a good uh, sign.
0: <laughs> I hope you reminded the publisher that, that the Monuments Men had 3,500. Very much so. Uh,
1: and in fact, the, we just had a terrific review in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend, and they actually mentioned the Monuments Men too, and kind of interesting ways they drew parallels between the two stories. Um, it is like that, it's about art. And the role that art plays in your society and kind of the way we imagine our nation state. Uh, and it's about war, it's about the Second World War. And particularly, it's about the Second World War in China, which is a kind of war that we've largely forgotten about in the Anglophone world. Uh, and in essence, you know, there was this co- colossal collection of art inside the Forbidden City in the old imperial palaces of Peking. Uh, And when the last empire of China died in 1911, 1912, and China became a fragile republic, uh, they didn't know what to do with all this art. So they sort of turned it it, into a museum. And then when Japan began to sort of inexorably uh, uh, gobble up bits of China in the early 1930s, they realized that these art collections were in real danger from air raids, from plunder, from the threat that the Japanese military posed. So they boxed up, they crated up colossal amounts of art, about 250,000 objects and books in 20,000 wooden cases. And for the next 16 years, all the way through the Second World War and the Chinese Civil War, they moved this art all over China, over to the far west of China, thousands of miles, up rivers on steamships, over mountains in trucks. They took it through cities. They were being bombed continuously. Sometimes they were literally days away from the Japanese advance. And they moved these 20,000 cases of art uh, to the far west of China where they found sanctuary for the war years. Um, and the people who did this were quite remarkable, and I try to get into the book the way not only that they, they they actually carried out this extraordinary feat of conservation of art, but the lives that they lived and what it was like to be alive uh, in China's World War II. And that's something you don't hear much about in English. And I hope that it will read sort of fresh and differently.
0: Yeah, and particularly given the bad press China generally gets in the West these days, the fact that. China was, quote unquote, the good guys in the Second World War and the Japanese were the bad guys is something that I think many people, particularly in America, probably don't even understand.
1: The, China was the fourth ally, you know, it wasn't just the big three, it was it was Roosevelt, it was Churchill, Stalin, and Jiang Kai-shek, the leader of the Republic of China. And the Republic of China, and remember this is pre-communist days, this is the Republic of China under the Nationalist Party led by Jiang Kai-shek, um, these guys were the only guys to hold out in East Asia against Japan. Everywhere else capitulated, the Dutch Empire capitulated, the British Empire capitulated, uh, uh, the French Empire in Indochina uh, capitulated. Uh, uh, the Republic of China was the only East Asian country to keep on fighting against the Japanese year after year after year. And in that war, something like, but somewhere between fourteen and twenty million people died uh, in China in that war. It was it was fought on a massive scale. And yeah, as you say, I think we've it's sort of fallen out of our remembering of China and what China has been in contrast to what it is today.
0: The China, of course, of Chiang Kai-shek was a China that was trying to figure out its role in in the modern age, trying to figure out what, if anything, China should be as a state, as an identity, as a cultural and economic force. How much of that was bound up in the story of fragile cargo and the importance of quote unquote, Chinese art in preserving the past and perhaps the future, protecting the future and getting a sense of what China would be in a post-war age.
1: So this art was originally, you know, it was a secret, hidden kind of horde of emperors. Only the emperors could see it. Uh, It lived deep in the recesses of the Forbidden City where only the emperor and his household could live and move freely. Uh, And for centuries, you know, there there it was. It was the emperor's private collection. Then suddenly, um, the emperor is no more. Uh, The last emperor, Puyi, got kicked out of the Forbidden City in 1924, finally. And the people who took over uh, the Forbidden City and took over Peking at the time uh, were trying to build a new sense of a nation state. China was in chaos at the time. It was fragmented. It was run by warlords and regional strongmen and central government was terribly weak. Um, The the whole place was a terrible mess. And the people who were trying to build the Republic of China were trying to uh, imbue in Chinese people a sense of nation and a sense of shared history which people had never really kind of had before. And they realized that one of the ways they could do this would be to build this terrific museum, which could rival the Louvre in Paris and could rival the British Museum in London, You know, which would give the young, fragile Republic of China a kind of central focal point. It would be a huge cultural institution. And so they opened this place up at enormous speed. In under 12 months, they turned the whole of The Forbidden City with its thousands of rooms and palaces into this slightly ramshackle museum. And they were mobbed. Crowds came in their tens of thousands to pack their way into the halls of The Forbidden City to see these objects that had never been seen before. and And yes, yeah, so it did kind of play a, a, a role in Um, building out this very fragile nascent sense of a Chinese nation state for the first time. And then when the Japanese came and the entire country fled west in this massive migration before the Japanese advanced, tens of millions of people, the entire government, schools, universities, factories, all fleeing to the west of China to get away from the Japanese. These objects went too, packed up in their 20,000 wooden cases, and it was sort of a feeling that you know this was an attempt to keep the idea of an independent sovereign China alive in the face of Japanese militaristic imperial um, expansion. So, yeah, they they have been very caught up in the sense of nation, and and in, they still are today.
0: Uh, Adam, to what extent was were well, the curators um, the the heroes and heroines of, of, of your narrative? To so what extent were they politically divided between, shall we say, incipient nationalists and perhaps even Maoists or leftist people who rejected the idea of uh, Chinese nationalism and embraced the idea of some sort of working class, proletarian solidarity?
1: When this all got underway, uh, the curators, as far as I can tell, uh, were all firmly on the nationalist side of, of the equation. They were committed to the Republic of China. They were civil servants in being employed by, by the state in the Republic of China. Uh, and they saw their role very much you know, as preservation, conservation of this cataloging of this extraordinary collection. Um, an extraordinary moment in the mid-1930s comes when they are asked to send some of the most finest pieces, some of China's greatest paintings, its greatest works in bronze and jade and porcelain, to London for this international exhibition in the 1930s. There was this huge exhibition in London. Um, and so these curators, you know, dug into their wooden cases, picked out some of the best pieces that they thought they 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 were in charge of, and they packed them up again and they put them on a Royal Navy cruiser. Uh, uh, and this Warship took them all the way to London, and they were exhibited in London for uh, for months and months. Uh, And this was a sign. This was a sign of how the the young Republic of China was desperately trying to get attention internationally. These pieces of art became kind of objects of statecraft for a while. Um, So they were all the curators were were, uh, were nationalists, and they worked in the service of the Republic. Later on. By the late 1940s, after the Second World War, when China has fallen back into civil war and the communists under Chairman Mao are on the move and are taking over the country. When was the Long then March? They split. I'm sorry. Yeah. When was the Long March? What year? was the 1930s, but now we're talking end of the Second World War. Right. japan has been defeated. China falls back into its long-running run in, civil war between the Republic of China and the Chiang Kai-shek and the, and, and the communists under Mao. The communists come pouring down from the north. They take over Manchuria. The Republic is exhausted and corrupt and falling apart. And at this point, the curators split. Some decide to stay on the mainland with the communists and others retreat to Taiwan with Jiang Kai-shek and the remnants of the nationalist government. And those guys who flee to Taiwan take with them some of the most important art in all of Chinese history, all of Chinese civilization. That went to Taiwan, too. So today... This extraordinary imperial art collection that lived in the Forbidden City for centuries, today it's split. Some of it remains in Beijing, in the People's Republic of China, and some of it is in Taiwan. Um, And those collections will will probably never be reunited and never put back in in the place that they were supposed to be. Wow. uh,
0: uh, Adam, you're a uh, sufficiently uh, old hand, but perhaps never to say never. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the future? Well, he I mean, knows how what's, how what's what. You're right.
1: You're right. Um,
0: but but um, to, to what extent should we, shall we say progressive, should we be sympathetic to progressives, the, 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 the more progressive curatorial class, who who recognised that falling back on Chinese nationalism was an old fashioned, perhaps even a reactionary idea. I mean, there was a form of Chinese fascism too, wasn't there? Uh, which was? it depends who you ask. I mean, that. Well, Chiang Kai Shek wasn't exactly Joe Biden. Um,
1: for a long time, our image of the Republic of China has been dominated by a few very kind of static images. And one of them was that Chiang Kai shek was a kind of quasi fascist himself, and that his nationalist party was quasi fascist. And um, one of the, there are weird reasons for that. Uh, one of them was that his army in the late 1920s and through the early 1930s was trained by the Germans. And uh, German Wehrmacht officers came to China to train up his army. And they all wore German style equipment, and they wore coal scuttle helmets like the mm. Nazis. And that made them think, oh, they're all fascists. Jan kai was no shrinking violet. He ran an authoritarian party with a very nasty predatory intelligence service. And you didn't want to cross his party with KMT. That's for sure. Whether or not he was ever really in line with fascist thinking, I think that's much more questionable.
0: So he's more kind of Admiral Horthy than Mussolini or certainly Hitler.
1: Yeah, I mean, people certainly make that argument. But I think in the last 20, 25 years, and particularly with the opening up of Chiang Kai-shek's diaries, which has only happened relatively recently, and a lot of historical kind of revision, I think people have begun to move away from that idea that this was a kind of quasi-fascist regime. I think it was a very corrupt, rather fragile, quite brutal authoritarian state. But Many times it seemed to align more with a Soviet vision, actually, of what China should be, than, say, a, a, a kind of national socialist or, or quasi-fascist vision. I think this is still contested. I don't think people
0: really know quite what Jiang Kai Shek's China was,
1: mm-hmm. and a lot yeah,
0: of work's yeah, being done yeah, to maybe rethinking. we never will. Um, what what is or or what should what would you expect the official? Chinese regime, Xi Jinping's uh, take on your book and on this narrative? Would they see this as an attempt to save bourgeois Chinese art, uh, a, a pointless endeavor? Obviously, they'd be very critical of the curators who took much of the art to Taiwan. But is there an official line on this story, or is it simply not known in China?
1: Great question. Really good question. Uh, And it's, and it's complicated. (laughs) The, um, the, you know, Xi Jinping uh, uh, has been instrumental in building out this huge nascent sense of nationalism, which in inside the People's Republic of China, which, you know, depending on who you ask, some people will say is now the principal kind of animating impulse behind his, his rule. Uh, so, no, they love uh, the great, grand sweep of Chinese history now. This is very much a part of Xi Jinping's worldview. China is an ancient civilization, 5,000 years of history, and an essential Chine- China and an essential Chineseness has always been there. It's sui generis. It's exceptional. It's, there's nothing else like it. And um, this art... That we're talking about is in his mind and the minds of, of the Chinese authorities today the party today is emblematic of Chinese national greatness whether or not it was made by uh emperors and 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 or the bourgeoisie or imperial China or anything else so um Xi Jinping's view of his role is of that of a steward the, the, the rightful steward of Chinese greatness uh, and the Chinese Communist Party is is the steward and arbiter and definer of Chinese greatness. And the art is a part of all that. So, no, they love it. They think it's terrific. They love this story. Um, it's the centenary in two years' time of the founding of the Palace Museum in 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 Beijing in the Forbidden City, and so this story is getting told repeatedly. It's a it's a big story in China, and it's been kind of mythologized into a grand national narrative. Unfortunately, no, I don't like my telling of it very much. My telling somewhat diverges from the official version in China. Well, that's such, a great view, Adam. We have we
0: haven't found a publisher in China. Are they? I assume it would sell well if they translated it, but I'm guessing it might be hard to translate. Um, the, the, it hasn't got past the censor in China, so we're not going to get. Why? Time. What? What's so offensive about it? Do you think?
1: Um, a number of things. Uh, I diverge a bit from the way that the Communist Party portrays the grand sweep of Chinese history a bit, and the sort of language I use. Specifically, I talk about the Chinese Civil War in ways that the Chinese Communist Party refuses to, to, to use and doesn't want to, to use. Um, and I then go on to talk about what happened to my central character, a man named Ma Hung, who was the director of the Palace Museum and who oversaw this huge journey. What happened to him after 1949 when the communists came to power? And it's not a very happy ending. Uh, the intellectual class in China suffered seriously, uh, not only in the Cultural Revolution, but earlier in the 1950s. And my guy did not have a very happy ending, and that has meant that the censors in China will 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 not
0: publish the book in its current form, anyway. So they're not willing to acknowledge the cultural revolution or
1: no 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 this is pre cultural revolution Or so well, they're not m- willing to
0: acknowledge the pre cultural revolution that people were persecuted in communist time it's, it's
1: it's it's messy the particular campaign that my guy uh, ma hung went down in is not widely discussed in china it is a bit but not very much. Certainly the detail uh, that I go into in the book describing what happens to this very eminent professor and art historian between 1951 and 1953, uh, I, I, I do go into some detail relating what that was all like. And um, people who have read the book inside the PRC say, unfortunately, that that, that is not going to get by any sense.
0: I mean, the Chinese censorship is relatively porous. We have a decent audience from China in this. So, so I assume the book and the ideas will find their way one way or the other to China. I had a couple of questions, Adam. On I mean, one of the astonishing things is that most of this art wasn't just stolen. How much of it disappeared? Was there an element of pilfering? There was a, a, an awful lot of the imperial art got stolen over the years. Um,
1: the late 19th century, early 20th century Uh, palace staff, eunuchs, princes, everybody, consorts was like, was wandering around the palaces sticking porcelain up their sleeves and rolling up invaluable hand scrolls taking it out of the Forbidden City and selling it to the antiques dealers of, uh, of Peking, who would then sell it on to Japanese and European and American collectors. Lots of stuff went walkabout. Um, there was also the, you know, the 1860, the, the British and French troops plundered and burned down some of the imperial palaces. 1900, they did it again. A lot of stuff got looted at that point. When the curators that I write about took over responsibility for the imperial collections in the mid 1920s from then on there's much less thievery why because they knew how to do cataloging they knew how to do inventory and they built out these fantastic catalogs and their record keeping was superb When these 20,000 wooden cases full of imperial art were evacuated and went off on this extraordinary 16-year journey, the curators knew where every piece was, in which case it was, everything was labelled, and they knew where everything was all the time. They were extremely efficient. So during this period, I have not found any evidence that anything got stolen because the catalogues came back to Beijing and Taiwan later on intact. Um, What did happen was quite a lot got broken. (laughs) Only a small fraction of the total amount shipped, but still hundreds of pieces got broken. Cases got dropped. Trucks uh, uh, drove into each other and they overturned on icy mountain passes. At one point, one guy is driving a truck laden full of cases full of imperial art and a locomotive smashes into the side of it as he goes over a, a railway crossing and quite a lot gets broken then stuff just got broken from bouncing around on the back of trucks in bad roads so so there was that but they tracked every single piece that got broken and it's all there you can see it in the primary sources what i don't see is anybody bemoaning the fact that stuff is going missing so I don't think very much did. And in fact, I haven't found any evidence of any getting stolen on this journey, which is remarkable when you think about it. But that does seem to be the case.
0: Yeah, it is remarkable. He's going to make a great movie, Adam. I'm not sure if you've sold the movie rights, it's sort of Monument Men meets Fitzcarraldo. I can already imagine those scenes on mountains Wouldn't with the heavy and the, the <laughs> valuable porcelain getting cracking around at the back of a... Um, a, uh, a van. Uh, in a counterfactual sense, we know what the Nazis did when they got hold of art. They put it in their private collections. What would the Japanese have done if they'd have got hold of this art?
1: Well, what they did with all the art they got hold of elsewhere in, in China. I mean, uh, China was bombed mercilessly uh, for years. Uh, Chongqing, the wartime capital, was the most bombed city in the world for several years. Um, an awful lot got destroyed in the bombing. Um, other stuff got looted by soldiers and troops when they when they took over Chinese cities. A lot just disappeared. Libraries and universities got burned down, so huge numbers of texts and paintings and calligraphy got destroyed in the flames. When stuff got taken um, by chinese uh, by Japanese looters. It disappeared. It went back to Japan. And even to this day, I'm told by art historians, and you can't kind of talk about this too much in polite company because people get very upset. But when stuff goes into Japanese collections, it somewhat disappears from view. And art historians have told me privately they get quite frustrated not knowing what has happened to important works of art from China and elsewhere in Asia because it just vanished into Japanese private collections and you kind of never hear of it again. And collecting in Japan is not quite the same as collecting in Europe. You don't put your stuff on display and demonstrate your connoisseurship. It's Mm. a private, private experience.
0: I'm sure this thing will... This, this will be a story that will play out. What does this story tell us about what one historian uh, who appeared on the show recently, Mai Nei, who's a historian at Columbia University, what does it tell us about what we in the West call the China question?
1: Well, I mean, what does it tell us? It tells us to start with that China did not always look the way that China does now. Uh, this very closed country with its very unified, centralized government and its um, kind of what it, promoting a very kind of unitary, centralized identity and face to the rest of the world. That wasn't the way that China used to look. China used to be a much more various, much more regional and much more outward looking country. Uh, one of the things I talk about in the book was the transition in the 19-teens and 20s known as the new culture movement when Chinese intellectuals were just sucking up art and politics and theory and philosophy from all over the world. And it was an incredibly fertile time for Chinese creativity. China's greatest literature you know, comes out of that period and, and China's greatest art and modern art comes out of that period. So China, you know, China didn't always look this way. Um, and, of course, Chinese, people who identify as Chinese in other parts of the world still have that enormous variousness about them. And, and it doesn't all feel the way that it feels in the People's Republic of China. And it tells us, too, that World War II in Asia was, ver- was much more visibly a clash of empires, European empires, the British, French, the Dutch. The Japanese Empire and a young China that was trying to kind of reclaim its imperial for its imperial borders, which China, the PRC, is still trying to do today. It wants to recreate the shape of China, this thing we call China, uh, to in, in the same borders, in the same shape on the map as it was when it was an empire in the Qing dynasty. Um, they've gone a long way to doing that. They've got Xinjiang, they've got Tibet, they've got Macau, they've got Hong Kong. And the last thing that the PRC, the People's Republic of China wants back is Taiwan, of course. And this story will show you the way that that split between the PRC and Taiwan took place and and give you some sense of of the contours and the shape of, of, of the big, the larger China story that you're referring to.
0: Adam, we did a a show uh, with another award-winning historian, Henrietta Harrison, a British historian, teaches Chinese history at Oxford, I think, on uh, 18th century China and the story of translating uh, King China and the British Empire, featuring a couple of very famous translators. You are, in a sense, a translator of China, of Chinese history um, into the West. What did doing this book teach you about the art, the act, and perhaps the science of translation itself, of of bringing China into people's living rooms, of, of teaching the West about China, especially since this book isn't going to get published in China itself?
1: Um, what I've learned about it so far, it's a, it's a big ask. You know, uh, uh, getting the general reader in in the United States and Europe to to sit down and pay attention to art history and the kind of intellectual history of 20th century China so that they might have a better kind of, uh, uh, be able to develop a, uh, you know, a fuller understanding of contemporary China and East Asia. It's a big ask, you know, you've got to, you've got to give, if people are prepared to give me their time and their eyeballs, You know, I've got to give them something that is understandable and and can be engaged with. So the real challenge for me is is trying to pitch the story in a way that the reader feels comfortable with, feels engaged with, doesn't get overwhelmed by. Um, Chinese names, place names and people's names are very hard to follow in Romanization. You know, when they're written out in a Roman alphabet, it's hard to stay oriented. So the challenge for me is... As a writer for the general reader uh, and a kind of someone who tries to render Chinese speech, you know, into English and tries to bring alive Chinese people and people my stories with real Chinese people, it's trying to it's trying to frame it in all such a, in such a way that that we in the West can stay oriented on it and stay engaged with it and just not get overwhelmed and confused by it, which is, I think, what most people feel when they when they look at books about china
0: finally adam i got to ask you this question as the former bbc guy in china there's so much bad reporting on china not bad in the sense of of not being good but critical reporting on china even orville shell who's certainly a progressive was on this show he he's certainly fallen radically out of love with the china of xi jinping We've had other guests like uh Isaac Stonefish, an American journalist, who suggests that any American elite who is in any way sympathetic to China is somehow uh, irresponsible, uh maybe even traitorous to America. I think it's a very irresponsible position. What For you, I, I know this is a rather dumb question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. No, what, 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 what's happening in China right now under Xi Jinping? Are, are we overreacting? Is this guy... Qu- as much of a monster, certainly as Fish argues, and perhaps even Orville shall? I...
1: The party under Xi Jinping is certainly doing monstrous things. Uh, you cannot look at what's gone on in Xinjiang. You cannot look at what's happened to dissent in China or to Hong Kong without having your kind of... Heartbroken. I mean, it's 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 those of us who've been paying attention for a while. I think most of us are deeply, deeply shocked. Uh, It's 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 very, very disheartening, particularly when we thought that you know the Chinese Communist Party was a rather more flexible and open-minded thing, which we, we thought in the 90s and early 2000s maybe, and we've all been taken aback at the retrenchment and the falling back into these kind of totalizing deeply authoritarian instincts that they have. It's frightening. I find it frightening. Um, I have another worry layered on top of that, which is that in our response, when I say our, I mean we in the United States particularly, we are talking ourselves into escalation and confrontation, not only because we are shocked by what's happening in China, but because it's domestically useful for politicians in the United States to do so. I find myself sort of longing for a Western approach uh, that would both disincentivize and deter China from doing what it's doing, and particularly deter it from attacking Taiwan, but at the same time could de-escalate tension between the United States and China from a strategic and military perspective, because I really worry that we're beginning to get into an escalatory spiral in the United States and that China's sort of doing the same thing. We, both countries are painting, painting themselves into corners whereby the rhetoric under Xi Jinping makes it very hard for anyone in China to try and be flexible in diplomacy or their attitudes in Taiwan. And we in the United States are starting to employ rhetoric which makes it very difficult to reach out and engage with China. Uh, So I really do worry. And the last few weeks, particularly with this flipping balloon and all this nonsense, um, you know, I really worry that that we are bit by bit, little by little, ratcheting up these tensions and getting ourselves on a path that's going to, to confrontation that will be very difficult to get off later on.